Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, uh, we are going to be discussing today about how and when to evaluate uh, melanoma patients on immunotherapy or undergoing both adjuvant and or neoadjuvant therapy. My name is Dr. Brian Gassman. I'm at the Cleveland Clinic. I run our melanoma and high-risk skin cancer program, uh, and I'm a surgeon. Uh, hi, I'm Michael Tetzloff. I'm a professor of dermatology and pathology at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, I'm actively practicing uh, dermatopathology now and, and spent the first 10 years of my career at MD Anderson uh, working with the melanoma group there. Fantastic. So just to get into uh, the topic, uh, let's start with adjuvant therapy. Uh, you know, we've defined it probably many times in the series, but just to remind our audience, in, in our world in melanoma, that is really post-surgical, post-definitive therapy, uh, systemic therapy when it comes to immunotherapy. Um, there are multiple approvals, though, in, in melanoma, uh, targeted therapy, at least two anti-PD-1s and one anti-CTLA-4. Uh, so for the purpose of this discussion, I think we're going to probably focus mostly on the anti-PD-1-based checkpoint inhibition. Um, and uh, maybe I'll start with Michael. Um, what are your thoughts on, on how and why to monitor these patients for uh, therapy uh, response and efficacy? Um, so, you know, the why is a great question, Brian, because I think, you know, the, the, the real advantage of neoadjuvant therapy is it gives us that sort of interval window into how well a patient is responding to a specific agent, also offers the ability to interrogate the tissue for specific biomarkers that might inform, uh, you know, uh, risk stratification going in the future, and also uh, the opportunity to potentially modulate therapy in that, in that interval window and decide you know, we either continue with this or we go with something else, depending upon the extent of response. So I think the why is 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 a really uh, important advantage that neoadjuvant therapy offers patients over and above the adjuvant therapy model. So um, if so, from an uh, that brings in a very good topic of where adjuvant adds it. Excuse me, neoadjuvant adds the adjuvant from an adjuvant only perspective. Let's. Uh, Let's take that, since that's the one where we've done the most phase three randomized controlled trials. Any thoughts from your perspective on um, not having that neoadjuvant information into how and why we monitor these patients? And I should say when? Um, certainly, you know, regular intervals after initiating therapy to determine the extent of uh, radiographic and, and clinical imaging response, um, with the caveat, obviously, that, that early on in the therapy, uh, we know that there's a brisk immune infiltrate that might uh, show artificial growth of the tumor, but really that's just a reflection of an immune response. Yeah, so from my perspective, you know, after someone's had surgery, um, you know, we generally are uh, certainly on clinical trials, but also in standard of care, uh, doing serial imaging. Uh, in our area of the woods, we have a very hard time getting PET-CT scans approved. So we tend to use uh, CT scans, uh, depending, including the head and neck, if it's in head and neck, primary, uh, otherwise uh, chest, abdomen, pelvis. We're usually doing that about every three months for two years, and then usually every six months uh, if the patients are doing well up to five years. Uh, we're not usually getting LDHs in our, 
our department. Uh, we are getting, depending on the risk of the patient, usually a yearly brain MRI as well um, because of the, you know, melanoma is the second leading cause of brain metastasis, as you know. Uh, so adjuvant therapy, I think it's sort of well worked out because it's been around the, it's much longer um, and it's, I guess, less under investigation. I think the big issue now is can we do better? Um, the the uh, anti-LAG3, anti-PD1 uh, trial, RELA, uh, is out there, uh, re relatively 098, um, and, and there'll be many others. And then, of course, in the earlier stage uh, patients, especially the stage 2, MeToo, C, there's a multitude of trials that are going to be coming out soon. So I think it seems that from that perspective, it's a, it's a much more straightforward question. But as you alluded to with the new adjuvant side, that's really where the complexity comes in and a lot of investigation. So, um, from, so you know, you being also a dermatopathologist, I'm curious, uh, what do you think about the um, assessing the patient response versus the original biopsy? So you get a biopsy, you give them some courses of neoadjuvant therapy, and then you get the tumor specimen. How do you compare one to the other, not just the actual response in the neoadjuvant resection bed? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think there's limited utility in the comparison per se, only to the extent that the the, the pretreatment is usually like a core biopsy, and you're just getting a small piece of the bigger picture. Um, whereas at the time of surgery, obviously, you all are removing the entire tumor, and that gives us the ability to really interrogate histopathologically uh, uh, and grossly the entire treated tumor bed. So you get a much broader view of response slash resistance to therapy at the, uh, uh, at the time of surgery, as opposed to pretreatment specimens um, in which uh, uh, you're really just getting a snapshot. That, that said, I think the pretreatment and sometimes even on-treatment biopsies really offer a critical window for biomarker assessment to really start to understand aspects of the tumor cells and the tumor microenvironment that may inform uh, uh, prognostic models going forward of uh, uh, biomarkers that predict response and or resistance to, uh, to the therapy of, in, in, in question. So in the theme of how and why to follow these patients, I mean, once they've had their neoadjuvant therapy, they're essentially an adjuvant patient in terms of follow-up. They've had surgery, they're going to get likely clinical uh, interval scans and, and, and um, physical exam. But as you know better than almost anybody, there's a, obviously a huge difference between a pathologic complete response and a pathologic non-response. Let's assume, based on the Menzies major uh, paper, um, you know, the, the meta-analysis of all the major neoadjuvant trials, that 50% or lower of, uh, of non-viable uh, non tumor is a non-pathologic response. And let's say you have a, that type of patient versus someone who has literally no viable tumor at all, complete pathologic response. Would you, in your mind, feel there's any reason to change how we evaluate those patients in the adjuvant setting, in the post-neoadjuvant, post-surgical setting? No. I, I think that the only way that you got to that data was through sort of a systematic approach towards um, identifying the extent to, of, of a viable tumor in that treated tumor bed. Um, until we have an empiric number that says um, either we don't have to evaluate there or we can modify the manner in which we've proposed to assess the tumor bed. And 
for a number that says, oh, actually the magic number is 60% response or 70% response. And there's certainly some early data to suggest that these kind of empirical cutoffs that we assigned, 50% is just something that's a pretty reproducible cut point to distinguish uh, a partial response from a quote unquote non-response. But certainly that's just empiric based on what's practical, um, not necessarily data driven yet. And until we see data that really drives that distinction, um, I think we sort of keep with those cutoffs. And, and I would just add that the systematic approach that we proposed, um, and I can sort of share my screen briefly and just sort of share that, the systematic approach that we proposed is here to sort of ensure that depending upon the nodal size, less than five centimeters, you submit all that tissue. Greater than five centimeters, you submit a complete cross-section per centimeter of involved node, with the advantage being that you get a really systematic topographic map of that treated tumor bed, either in toto or at least a systematic approach through the tumor bed. And what that I think does is, again, affords us a very careful assessment that was the basis for the MENSI study um, in which we were able to pool those different patients because they had all been processed similarly at the pathology bay and from the perspective of our uh, uh, cut points of you know complete response, partial response, and non-response, they were all processed and analyzed uh, uh, similarly. So it, it seems to me that, I, and I get what you're saying, you're saying that since we don't know <clears throat> that nobody is going to recur with a pathologic complete response and we don't know when, when and how bad they will with a pathologic non-response, but so so maybe we don't um, do less imaging, but then um, what about the opposite? So for example, we know, I believe it was from the uh, um, the Australian group, that the average recurrence for adjuvant patients, uh, mainly stage three, receptable stage fours, is around four and a half months after adjuvant therapy starts. And right now, if you get um, CT scans every three months, you're literally going to be in the middle of between two CT scans when your average recurrence is going to happen, right? Because you're going to get one at three months, one at six, and the average is four and a half. Um, I, I would almost argue maybe we should be getting additional scans, maybe doing it every six weeks. So maybe maybe the pathologic complete responses, you do that every three months, and then um, after that, every six months after two years. But for those pathologic non-responders, does the data that you've seen maybe point to the fact that we should be getting every six weeks imaging? Because their risk is higher, and the timing of that risk is different, so we should intensify the follow-up imaging. What, what, what do you think, or, or we don't have the data for that? No, I, I think that's exactly the, the, the ideal, is, is you, you can sort of delineate patients according to their risk group. A complete responder, obviously based on the data that we have, is a, is a, is a, is a good category to be in, and a non-responder, somebody who has 80%, 90% viable tumor still, you know, there's there's all kinds of rationale. Should you change the therapy in the adjuvant setting? Do you want to be more aggressive about imaging? Um, all of these are again just underscoring more about the advantage to the neoadjuvant paradigm, uh, mainly that that you 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 have that interval window to then adjust things according to the patient's proposed risk. And 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 you know, Alex's study I think nicely exemplifies that. And 
um, everything that you're saying, I think, is just aligned perfectly with the model of why uh, neoadjuvant therapy is 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 such a strong model. Yeah, I would just, you know, I know we're near the end of time. You know, all this is still under investigation. These studies are pools of phase one trials, uh, but you know, we are getting the ability to do a lot of off-labeling of neoadjuvant therapies. And I think if you're the general clinician who's not doing these on clinical trial or, or not studying these on your own, I do think you it's really um, important for them not only to understand what these therapies are, but also to consider maybe tailoring the approach to each patient individually within the constraints of the that patient's insurance company to maybe up or down regulate the amount of intensity. But I agree with you. I probably would... St- at least try to start with what was in the clinical trials and only add to it, not detract from it. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing, uh, especially with the recent data of SWAG-1801, which compared neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 for macroscopic resectable disease plus adjuvant versus the same thing without neoadjuvant, regardless of pathologic response, it appears to be very positive. It's very exciting that neoadjuvant, regardless if you see it in pathology or not, has some additional clinical benefit to the patients. I look, really look forward to the peer-reviewed uh, paper on that. I think with that, I think we're probably out of time. And uh, thank you uh, for this conversation. Very good uh, to hear from experts. And I, I always learn a lot myself. Thanks. Thanks for including me as well. I really appreciate the chance to chat with you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.